Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello everybody, didn't see you there, how are you? Come in, grab a chair, let's have an episode of Homo Sapiens, shall we? Today, listeners, is a very special day. It is World AIDS Day. And, you know, it's a day to remember lives lost from AIDS. It's a day to raise awareness to those living with HIV and AIDS today, all over the world, not just the LGBT community. And it's a day to raise awareness for HIV and AIDS stigma, past and present, and how far we've come and how far we have to go. And so we're going to do a little special um, and to mark the day. So in part one here, this is part one for the fact fans among you, you're going to hear three different stories from three different memories of the HIV and AIDS crisis from previous Homo sapiens guests. Some of our favourite and best stories that have been told on this podcast. So first, you're going to hear from the incredible Ruth Coker-Burks. Ruth is a truly a legend. You know, she nursed dying men of AIDS in 1980s Arkansas when doctors wouldn't go near them and their families had disowned them. Her story is amazing. And so many, wrote, so many of you wrote in when this episode came out. And Ruth recounts how the men she treated became her closest confidence and changed her life, you know. And then we're going to hear from Russell T Davies. So he created It's a Sin and many other things. And he talks about his priorities when it came to making the show. For example, portraying through his brilliant and eclectic cast how many ordinary lives were lost to AIDS, how each and every person had their own relationship with sex, shame and AIDS. And he talks about his own experiences of living through the AIDS crisis and how and how he feels. Something that always sticks with me about Russell actually is he always says this thing. He feels that claiming that we lost a generation to AIDS is 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 false and he almost kind of says it's glib and his reasonings is wonderful. And I love, I always love talking to Russell. I feel like I'm always at once challenged but invigorated. And then finally, we hear from Frank Holiday and his husband, Raphael. Me and Alan met these two when we were in New York and we weren't meant to do an interview with them as far as I seem to recall. I think we just met them and they were incredible. And... They both contracted HIV during the 80s and are living with it today. And they, and they just talk in first hand about living in New York around that time and friends lost and survivors guilt and med- remembering all the breakthroughs that made the illness survivable at the time. And, you know, it's a touching story. But also Frank is one of the funniest people on the planet. And his story 
about watching Liza Minnelli with doctors coming in in hazmat suits needs to go down in history. So let's hear Ruth. I just wonder what, you know, World AIDS Day comes around every year and and I wonder what it means to you this year. Well, that's Billy's birthday. It's December 1st. Really? Yeah. And so I always, you know, it's always a happy day for me because it's his birthday, but it's also a very poignant and sad day for the people that we've lost and the people who are still becoming infected. And, um, you know, they think, oh, well, that's an old man disease back in the 1980s, and I'm not going to get it. And if I do, I'll just take a pill. No, Mm. no, 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 no. You know, it wrecks your body. Any way that you can keep from getting HIV or any virus, the better off you are. So you were visiting, you're in hospital and you're visiting your friend Bonnie. Yes. You went for a walk along the hall or something, didn't you? I did. There were three nurses who we had grown to love because Bonnie was having her fifth reconstructive surgery since her cancer diagnosis. So that's five years that we waited for those surgeries. Mm. And, you know, I would bake cookies and take them up there in like a little cookie tin, and we'd all grab a cookie out and eat it. And, um, I didn't know those nurses who were out there drawing straws, even though they were the same ones that we had grown to love so much. And um, I just couldn't imagine what it was. Well, I did know what it was. And so when they all drew their last straw, they all just took off in separate halls down to the end to start working their way back and waiting on other patients. And they completely ignored that room. And it had his trays and I had never seen a disposable styrofoam tray before and they were Mm. lined up in the hall probably about maybe I don't know six five of them and there was apple juice all over it and it was a bologna sandwich that you know they had just kicked everything oh you know it's just and who would want to eat food that was laying on the floor of a hospital Mm. and so I snuck into his room wow I couldn't tell him from the bed sheets. And I thought, well, maybe he's in the restroom. And he wasn't. He was so frail and so thin and so pale that he was all wrapped up in the bed sheets. And I couldn't tell him from a clump of bed sheets. And so I went over to him and I asked if there was anything I could do. And I kind of straightened out his sheets and, you know, got him a little bit comfortable. And he said he wanted his mother. And I thought, well, yay, I can do that. And then I can get out of here and go back to my life. So I told him, I promised him I'd be right back. And I went out and I announced to the nurses that, you know, he wanted to see his mama. And they all backed up like I had them at gunpoint. And they were standing against that back wall And uh, they said, you didn't go in that room, did you? And I go, well, yeah, I did. And they go, oh, well, he's got that gay disease. Don't you go back in there again? And you went in there without, you know, garb on and all of that. Mm. And I said, well, can't we call his mother? And they go, honey, his mama's not coming. He's been here six weeks. Nobody's coming. Mm. 
you know, they finally reluctantly gave me a phone number and I reached for the desk phone, which we had used all those years. And they, they scraped it back across the desk and said, the payphone's down the hall. Mm. So with as much dignity as I could muster up, I went down to the end of the hall and I called his mother and she hung up on me. She said, I don't have a son. He died when he went gay and don't call me back. And I called her right back and I said, if you hang up on me one more time, I'll put your son's cause of death in the local newspaper and I'll list his cause of death. And I had her complete attention and she still didn't even want me to call when he died. Wow. It was brutal. You buried Jimmy's ashes in that cemetery, right? On your On top of your dad's grave, right? I did. I did. And, uh, you know, it was just a do-it-yourself funeral. And I had like a um, pick and a post hole digger and, you know, a shovel. And that's all I used out there to dig the graves. And, um, you know, it was just what I had to do. And, you know, I couldn't get anybody to dig it for me because um, I couldn't tell anybody what I was doing. I was afraid that, you know, they would vandalize the cemetery or go and dig him up or any number of things they were doing, Mm -hmm. you know, to people with AIDS. And um, so I buried them in places where I knew I could find them if I ever needed to. And their families all knew where they were buried. I made sure that I spoke to every family, whether they wanted me to or not and told them where their son was buried, so if they wanted to go and get him, they could. And did anybody ever come? Not that I know of. So they are all still there at your family plot? Yeah. You had that incredible experience with Jimmy, who was in the hospital, and he had no one. No one would look after him. And you took it upon yourself to bury him and to give him the send-off he deserved. So that's the first person. But then you went on to help hundreds thousands well over 10 years that's only 100 people a year so yeah how did it move from being one to so many well i was the only one in arkansas who was doing anything Mm -hmm. and um that was back in the early days when no one knew what to do the doctors wouldn't take you the nurses wouldn't take you you know, mm. we took Billy to the hospital one night and they wouldn't let him in the emergency room because they knew he, if I was there, they knew he had AIDS. And mm. it wasn't even an AIDS-related issue that he had gone to the ER. It, I think it was a sinus infection or something. And uh, they called the sheriff and there was a sheriff's car waiting to take him to jail because the hospital was not uh, equipped to take an AIDS patient. Really? But the funny thing was, after I called the administrator at two o'clock in the morning and told him since I was awake, maybe he would like to be awake, um, and I was going to have the best publicity that he could never afford to pay for there at five o'clock in the morning if he didn't admit Billy to the hospital. And I am telling you, I would have called Little Rock and had every TV truck over there that next morning. And he reluctantly let him in because he didn't want that. He knew I would do it. And just for people who don't know, you know, tell me a bit more about the disdain with which AIDS 
people with AIDS were treated with. I remember you saying about Jimmy, the first the first boy, how he was shoved in a bag. His body was yeah. shoved in a bag. Yeah. You know, what what was the atmosphere like well, in the attitude? It was a funeral home down in the Delta and I knew they were going out of business because I had passed it many times and their grass in the front yard was like knee high. But I, you know, they were still open, but I knew that they were really struggling if they couldn't even afford to mow their lawn. And I had called all the funeral homes in Little Rock. And so I, these guys said that they would come in. It was an African-American funeral home. And here in the South, I mean, you don't go to a black funeral and they don't go to a white funeral. I mean, it is all segregated. It probably still is today for a big extent of that. But um, they came and got him and they said, okay, well, we're not going to embalm him and we will only cremate him and we'll come after hours and you can't ever tell anybody. And I'm like, okay, I'm good with all of that, seriously. And so mm-hmm. they came and they had on those ridiculous hazmat type suits they didn't have hazmat suits back then but they had on some kind of protective stuff probably involving Mm. duct tape and um they just shoved him in a bag and you know just like they were like he was a hot potato just get him and shove him in the bag and he probably didn't weigh 60 pounds you know he was just skeletal with just his bones you know you could see every bone in his body and his organs and it was just so sad that they would treat a human being with such lack of dignity i had never seen that before it's that thing when we don't understand we treat it with more yeah disdain and just it's a such a crushing shame i took a pail of water with soap in it and a washcloth and I went and I washed his face while he was still alive and I washed you know his tears it had been so long since he had cried because he was so dehydrated he couldn't produce mm-hmm. tears anymore but the stains were still all over his dirty face and you know I fixed his hair and I washed him up and straightened his bed for him and you know I got him ready to go where he was going with you know with dignity and then they come and you know took it all well they didn't take it away I wouldn't let him he still died with his dignity Mm. and when you were burying people you had to take flowers with you didn't you to pretend I was so afraid I was going to get caught doing what I was doing. Even though it was a cemetery that my family had been buried in for, you know, decades, those spaces were mine. But I would still take flowers and pretend like I was planting a rose bush or pretend like I was planting some bulbs so people mm. wouldn't come and ask me what I was doing. But then suddenly you became this this go-to person, right? I did. Because your phone just started ringing, right? It did. And, you know, it would ring before daylight with somebody who just couldn't hang on until daylight to call me. It'd be 5 o'clock in the morning or 4.30 because they just couldn't wait until, you know, 8 o'clock around here is the proper time that you can call someone in the morning. And they mm-hmm. couldn't wait that long. They had waited all night or maybe all week to call me. And, you know, I don't know. It just word got out on the streets. I don't know how it happened, 
or the nurses said, we don't want you, but here's this woman's phone number. She's crazy. She'll take you. And I just started getting phone call after phone call after phone call of desperate men who didn't have a clue what was wrong with them. They didn't Mm -hmm. know. No one knew. And no one here knew about the tsunami of death that was about to hit my little town and my state. I had no idea. I mean, I knew it was coming, but I had no idea it was that big. I had no idea that it would be a pandemic. They were all so beautiful and kind and sweet and loving. And they had no one because Mm -hmm. the reason I really told this story is, number one, I thought I was going to die after my stroke. They said, you have a 75% chance of dying the first year, so go home and get everything in order. And I just looked at that doctor and I said, who are you talking to? And uh, (laughs) so I, um, I wanted that story to be told because people think it just happened in San Francisco on the West Coast or in New York City on the East Coast. But it happened right smack in middle America where all those men went, you know, they left their homes. They were thrown out of their churches. This is how it happened. The churches got up and said, you know, AIDS is God's punishment for all those nasty gay people. And, you know, Mm. if you've got someone in your family, throw them out. God's, it's their punishment. It's uh, the sins of the father will be, you know, the son and everybody was scared to death that their churches would find out and would throw the whole family and out of the church and shun them. Mm. So the families just got rid of their problem. They got rid of their sons. They shunned their sons. And that's what they were afraid the church was going to do to them. And so these sons land on your doorstep or their problem lands on your doorstep. And at first there wasn't medication and things, but What did they think you could do that you could? They thought that if they just had a soft place to land, Mm -hmm. if they just had someone's arms to fall into, that everything would be okay. And it was until they died, but they didn't die alone. And uh, I don't see, you know, death and I are old friends and I've always Hmm. pictured death as a, drag queen with red hair and an old west like a barmaid up on top of an upright piano in the old west movies and um in a bar and you know death and i were old friends and she would come and you know it just i don't know it's my imagination or if she was really there i don't know but you know it helped me and i would tell my guys you know about death and made it not as scary. Mm. And they did a study, didn't they, of um, how long people lived after HIV developed into AIDS. And they did. They found that the boys who were with you or the men who were with you lived how much longer? Two years longer than the national average. And that's because of? I loved them. That was the only thing they could think of is I loved them. They were loved and they were cared for. And there was no paper gowns or gloves 
we just loved each other. How does that make you feel about your own concept of death? You know, I always felt like I was taking them and putting them on a plane or a train or a trailways Mm -hmm. bus to go across the country. And I might see them again someday and I might not. Mm, but mm. you know here's your here's your sack lunch and give me a hug and i hope the best for you and you know i just felt like i was sending them off and i always felt like i was also at the same time carrying them across the river of death and handing them to the people who loved them the people who loved them on earth the people whose couches they surfed on until they had to finally give up and come home. And so, you know, I I don't know. I just have always had a, a real peace about death. I was thinking about my own life and growing up. I remember when I was about 17, I used to go and stay with my sister in Newport. And Newport had one of the very few gay saunas outside London. I think Mm. the only one. You know, for a scared, closeted boy, this was like the the holy grail of grails. Mm. This was like, there's a gay sauna. And I'd be staying at hers and I'd I'd have the day to myself. And I'd think, go to the gay sauna. And I found out the address. It was in the middle of town. And so I went there one day. And there it was. I mean, there was an actual door with a name, and it was real. And it must have been like a Tuesday afternoon or something, and the blood was pounding in my head, and I saw that doorway, and I just walked past, and I went home because I was too scared. I was too scared to go in. But the funny thing is, I told that story years later to Lisa Power, who's a great – she's a great power in the land in in AIDS activism and stuff. Um, She's our medical advisor on It's a Sin. Mm. I told her that story and she's, because I'd always regretted that. I've always thought, my God, I could have learned. I could have been there. I could have been having sex at 17 and having a real life. And, you know, how much would my life be more advanced? Would it be better? Would I be a better lover if I'd gone through that door? So, and after all those years of nagging regret i told her that story and she said that probably saved your life Mm. your own cowardice probably saved your life because that was the early 80s and if you discovered sex at 17 you would have gone back yeah and you would have gone back and you would have gone back and you wouldn't have been in control and then you'd have gone to london just to go to more of those saunas you would have loved it and that could have killed you wow isn't that weird a lifelong regret yeah flipped completely on its head and i thought wow okay i did the right thing someone says at one point the perfect virus the perfect virus for homophobes actually Mm. the perfectly targeted at sex is the one area where you're already carrying a burden you shouldn't be but but certainly in the 80s and now let's be honest that that you know you're coming out you're being yourself you're finding yourself sex is still a difficult subject so in the 80s gay sex is was enormously difficult you know, I thought, gosh, I've got to, I've got to show a decade. I've got to show the homophobia of the decade and the restrictions of that decade in amongst a gay group. That's quite hard because they're all very gay. When they're home, they're perfectly happy. But actually, and I thought back and I thought to my friends and I thought to myself and I thought, actually, it's not that simple. And in the drama, they're all out. They all live with each other. They all still have secrets. They still do. Ash is not out at work. 
Uh, Colin never says anything about his sex life. Mm. Roscoe has a completely separate sex life that he goes and lives separately from the flat and ref- doesn't, he doesn't just keep it secret. He refuses to tell them what's going on. And Richie, of course, has layer upon layer upon layer of closetedness. So, mm. so even out, even amongst your friends, even then there are all these layers of shame and complication and closetedness. So add an illness to that. Add a sexually transmitted illness to that. It's the perfect storm. It really it's is. why, you know, a lot of the opening of the series, the first two episodes, and certainly episode two, is very much about AIDS denial of, in 1983, 84, you know, when it's starting to rear its head. And the laws change in 1967. 15 years have passed. That's almost a generation. We should be coming out now. And along comes a disease that specifically targets gay men. Mm. It's simply unbelievable. You and I know, let me add the caveat, it doesn't specifically target gay men. But nonetheless, that's what it felt like. And that's how it was seen. And because of the form of transmission, that is, it well, was like it or not, it's focus. So... The the bizarreness of that, the you know, that's why it felt like a plot. It felt like something aimed at us. Mm. Still does sometimes. It, it felt like there's that beautiful like irony, the homophobe revenge. Yeah, the irony of it is mm. astonishing. And I think one of its sins, seminal moments, is that episode two bit. That's it's now a clip. It's, it's it's on the internet now. It's um that clip of Richie denying the existence of AIDS. Mm. I hadn't seen that in anything. You know, I had to find gaps. I had to find stuff that hadn't been written, that hadn't been said. Yes. And to find a way of expressing that. And as it goes on, there's darker stuff that I thought hadn't been said and hadn't been drama stories or hadn't been forgiven that I wanted to write about. So, um, yeah, I had to find, I found my own space. I aim for those mystifying people, those mystifying people who faced with gayness and faced with HIV have no love, mm. which I find extraordinary. I've been wanting to write that for decades, for absolutely decades. And yes. uh, yeah, the last episode is tough as hell, mm. but wonderful. It was a couple of years ago that I found myself with the father of someone who died, and I'd never said, I was so sorry, I'd never wrote them a letter. Do you mm. know I didn't write them a letter? Because I was like 25 and embarrassed, and, and actually I didn't know if the parents knew how he died. Mm. I didn't know what to say in the letter because... You know, this is a fact that a lot of people might not know that a lot of deaths were registered as cancer or as pneumonia and spoken about as that within the home. People mm. would say, my son has died of cancer, when too afraid to say that he died of AIDS. And I'm not here to tell those people off. Mm. It's, it's, you've suffered a terrible loss. Of course you do the wrong things or things you need to do to survive. Of course you do that. Oh, well, I'm not going to lecture you on how you handled your son's death for god's sake mm. but all that so you know i, I met this uh, parent a couple of years ago and uh, the conversation was so stilted and awkward and I, oh i wish both of us had just opened up but we kept the same old lies and the same old compromises and falsehoods going after 30 years extraordinary mm. um yeah that's why i said there's a lot of anger about this that then creates an awful lot of anger People might hate me for this, but it's not a generation loss. I think a lot of people say that. Mm. An awful lot of us survived, actually. Mm. Most people didn't get AIDS and die. Because, of course, so many lives were lost. I'm just hearing it said a lot lately that, that younger people say, it's an entire generation lost, yeah, yeah. and I will never... You know, it's a big Instagram post at the moment. I will never receive the wisdom and the mentorship and, and the knowledge of those people. It's like, yes, you will. I'm still here. And my, <laughs> most people my age are still here. It's not arguing about the right thing to say it's a generation yes, lost. Yeah, yeah. I think we also fall into that trap of, of, of saying, you know, so many lives were lost, you know, they could have been doctors. The, you know, the person who could discover the cure for cancer might have been lost in that period. Maybe true, but actually, 
that I wanted to calm that down in It's a Sin. That's why the, these, the characters in It's a Sin are unemployed actors. And one of them's a builder. And one of them's a supply teacher. And one of them's in the chorus at the West End. I wanted to make them really ordinary lives because they are just as important. Yes. They are every bit as important as someone who might have discovered the cure for cancer. It's, mm. it's like, it's, it's if you just spend your life being lovely to your friends and having a laugh with them on a Friday night and a pizza and a beer, that's a life well lived and you're nice to your mum. Yes. That's fine. You're a good lover. You're a good father. That's enough. You don't have to have discovered medical breakthroughs. Mm. And um, so I wanted to unromanticize the losses and just make them really, really ordinary. You know, a lot of people with HIV survived. There's an awful lot of people yes. with HIV, who contracted HIV in the 80s and 90s who are still with us. I suppose it's like a byproduct of trying to make people understand who don't seem to understand yeah you know the array the erasure thing i think maybe it's it's that but do you do you it think is. that young queer people forget what aids was does it matter well it the past? we do just as in the way you and i have never stood and given a minute silence for the five percent of the world's population that died in 1918 from the spanish flu we don't do that with illnesses. We move on. We very, I think it's part of that human survival instinct again that just says, thank you. We were ill. Goodbye. We move on. I, it's not entirely a homophobic reaction mm. to just turn your back on something. In 20, 30 years time, there'll be people having debates saying, why don't we have holiday dedicated to everyone who died from COVID-19? Why don't we have a two minute silence on March the 23rd every year when the first lockdown started? And we probably won't. No. Cause you don't do it for illnesses. You don't. No. It's part of our, part of our, Instinct is to just move on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I was watching TV, and it was the Tony Awards, and I had been watching all night because Liza was getting ready to come on, and you're probably on it too. It's like, um, <laughs> but all of a sudden, these three doctors came in has hazmat suits, like you know, like astronauts, oh and they came in and they were like sticking together, like like their feet, like <laughs> in my room, and they wouldn't like cross the room, and they were standing there, and like, Mr. Holiday, we need to talk to you. I was like. Wait, wait, wait! Liza's on. <laughs> so they they, they waited. And, they waited. <laughs> and Liza came on, and then then I said, "Okay." And they said, "Are you, ho, ho, ho? Am I a ho?" <laughs> oh, I had to think. Yes. Well, let's deconstruct that word. Um, and they were like, "Are you a homosexual?" I was like. 
What part of lies is on, don't you understand? <laughs> I mean, like, no, I'm like really, you know, so that was So my, did you, so they came in with the hazmat suits, you must have thought, oh, I know what they're going to say. I knew what they were And then, so say. you waited, so all through lies, you knew, oh my God, that's brilliant. Come on, what kind of, I mean, you know, I mean, I knew what was coming. Yeah. Liza gave me like three minutes of not having AIDS. Yes, right? they paused it. They paused it. it was, Frozen in history. Liza Aspic. The Liza Aspic. (laughs) And then they said, you know, you have AIDS, you have 35 T-scales, you're going to die. You know, don't you, please don't use the silverware. (laughs) And so then, and how long after that did, 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 did you start taking the cocktails? It was probably a month. It was like two weeks. Um, two weeks. I was at home. I was in the hospital for like two weeks. Then I was on my mom's couch for two weeks, and the article came out, and then I came back, and it was probably a month. So, I mean, I was holding on. Was and were you, on. like, really, really skinny and sick? And did you have the... AIDS so- became me, darling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. No, I mean, you know what was so <laughs> fucking weird? is like, I was so sick, and people were like, you have never looked better. Because <laughs> I was, like, 175, and... I have pictures. I look fucking awesome. <laughs> AIDS diet plan. Do you remember the AIDS oh, diet plan? Right. You had those little oh, things. You there was shoot. little chocolate. We had those in Britain too. It was like a, a little chocolate slimming sort of cookie mm-hmm. that you that I saw advertised on telly. Mm-hmm. And it was for you know ladies to eat. And you could eat a bit of chocolate and lose weight. It's probably full of speed or something. Yeah, absolutely. And it was called AIDS. AIDS. So AIDS that, diet plan. They changed that pretty <laughs> no. swiftly. Yeah. Everybody was like fucking freaked out about AIDS. We had come out of the Studio 54 cocaine factory, Lower East. Everybody was like, you know, we were like, we're so fucked up. And yeah. and then I think all the death pushed everybody like. Yeah. And so everybody, we got to get fucking sober if we're going to get through this, you know, bury everybody. So everybody kind of went to AIDS and ACT UP. It was kind of interesting. They went from the clubs to social kind of. Things. Social purpose. Yeah, stuff. social purpose more. Mm. We had to get it together. Mm. No, I just stayed sober. It was easier. I got sick, and I was ended up in North Carolina. I was working for Disney. Don't ask. <laughs> <What is it>? <laughs> <laughs> and I was painting costumes for Kennedy Center. And, um, oh, my God, I got very sick. So I flew to North Carolina. And because I said I knew I was dying. so Did you, Had you been diagnosed? No. But you just... I wasn't going to be... Di- everybody that got diagnosed ended up getting fried. Yeah, and they right. just died. So I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to... I decided not to go that route. So Many of us did. We, we're not going to go th- that way. Because so there were all these experiments of drug we were, trials and it was just... They were killing us. Yeah. That, did, you know that... I'm sure you've seen the, the, the How to Survive a Plague. Mm-hmm. And I thought one of the most moving parts was the, when the man had been in... He, he couldn't do his his reaction to the AZT was so awful he had to come off it and after you know after one thing and he was just so and then everyone else in the in the test died and he felt that the only reason he had survived was because he wasn't strong enough to to overcome the, the the side effects isn't that awful so on top of in fact he lived all his friends died and he had this sort of survivor's guilt about the fact that he wasn't strong enough I just thought that was the saddest thing well, I, you know, I had survivor's guilt too. By the time I was diagnosed, 
I had buried everybody. You were talking about how it was, yeah, like in the eighties. It was, I mean, it was bizarre because there was so many, there was so much money in the art world that I mean, they would like empty like wads of they would come in empty paper bags of money into your, you know, into your on your bed to pay for paintings because it was wow. so much commerce coming, and you know, art was really becoming a great commodity and. So there was so much money, and there was so much drugs, and then everybody started dying. So what year? What, what year was? Did you, when you were painting the Disney thing, and you knew that you that were was ninety six. Oh, so why? Yeah, I held on. I mean, this is amazing. Um, I mean, I held on. How long do you think you were positive before I, you? Got- I think I like f- fucked the the um, airline steward that. Patient <laughs> <laughs> zero. I'll, I used to say. I didn't get a blood transfusion. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know who I got. I call it. Isn't, I'm fascinated by that. You know that I I I, I, I don't it. want to. I always don't mean to pry, but I'm fascinated if ever anyone who is positive knows. Yeah, and they always do. I do. The, I do moment. know who. Do you? Yes. You did and, you? and it was the same. I was diagnosed in 1986 to uh, almost at the same time, and uh, it was funny because I knew I had it. I didn't want to recognize it, but I ended up with pneumonia and a friend of mine took me to the doctor, uh, especially on AIDS at that time. It was Dr. Unger. Unger. You, were, you were here? I was here in New York and it was, uh, uh, he told me, you have pneumonia related to HIV, you have AIDS. And I was like, what is, and it happened that I have 13 cells, 13, oh it, it was God. that bad, it was that bad, and I tried the ACT, but I like two months after the ACT, that's when they changed the cocktail. To, to another cocktail. And so you adjusted that, because I'm fascinated by that time as well, when everyone thought they were going to die, and suddenly you didn't, and I you was, had this I was planning overtime. to die in, in... Two weeks. I was planning to die in like six months, and so I had... Uh, write letters for my parents. I have write letters for the people that I love and things like that. I put them all over out and I decide like, uh, okay, well, I have a cousin, which is actually a Catholic priest. And I give him the letters and I say like, keep them in case something happened. You just deliver these letters. Yeah. I say like, okay, okay. But um, then everything changed at that point. Because so medication changed. Medication yeah. changed. Although that, the article from Dr. Ho came out in the New York Times two weeks after they told me I had six months to live and that there was nothing they could do for me. Go home and die. Get your ducks in a row. You'll be dead three to six months. Mm-hmm. And then you went to North Carolina. I was in North Carolina when all this happened. And then the article came. The article came. I was dying on my mother's couch and my sister brought me the article and said, look. And I was like, What? So then what did you do? You went I to called the- my friend and he said, get the fuck out of North Carolina. Come up. <laughs> <laughs> Best advice. He said, come now. I'll take you to my doctor, Dr. Sonobin. Oh, yeah. And Dr. Sonobin was this cranky old doctor in... English, <laughs> by the way. Oh, he's... The, I mean, and he had like like a brown old brownstone with like papers everywhere and... And like he was the one who started Amfar, and but yeah. he kind of got kicked out because he was too wild and yeah. radical. Mm-hmm. And um, he took me in, and he 
he, you know, saved my life. I mean, I was like, I have a headache. He goes, take a aspirin. <laughs> that was the kind of doctor he was. I really? Yeah, so he was amazing. But yeah. did, so you had to, because it wasn't like that overnight all these drugs were available. You had to find, I mean. We were part of the, the experiments. For the, like for the cocktails. The drugs, mm-hmm. Because oh, every year they start uh, changing drugs and they start coming out more drugs and drugs and drugs. And we were part of that, you know. We were changing drugs Literally every, the first, first every group. S- really? 10 months, every year. It was a different medicine, a different cocktail that it was coming and coming and coming. And suddenly we're here. You know? Yeah. No, it was, it's, it's an amazing thing to like have to tell everybody goodbye and kind of like, exactly. like, you know, see everybody weep for you. Like, sex must have been just a, a crazy thing to do. To, to almost you want that intimacy and you want that connection because they're in such a terrible thing, but at the same time, you're not quite sure what you're doing is going to. Oh, well, sex was... and death were intermingled. Yes. And, um,. But, you know, our generation, we did, had no idea. It was just all of a sudden, you're like the monsters in the house. And then the awful thing, I didn't realize so later, but not uh, funeral homes wouldn't take the bodies. And just, it's just awful. It was, it was. 14th Street, the one on 14th between 8th and 9th was the only one that would take people. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And how long did that last, that sort of hysteria? I mean, it took still vestiges of it everywhere, but. It took, it lasted until well into the medicines. Yes, I think it was like 1990s, mid-time of 1990s, when everything started being more accepted. And from 1996 to 2000, I think things were much more approachable. You yeah. know, like, okay, you're not going to get infected by... Um, I mean, the probabilities, you know, they start yeah. realizing and they start putting facts... Yes. Behind the, each one of the things, you know, they, well, this cannot happen because of this, and the probabilities of uh, of having oral sex against the pen, the uh, penetrations they are different, you know, yeah. the different chances, be, and they start explaining all of those yeah. things, and that's when everything. People changed. still don't believe it, though. I mean, I still well, there's think some there's people a, then that they uh, still not believe. And you know, people still get thrown in prison for having sex with a not disclosing yes. your your yes. HIV, even if you are undetectable. Really? Yeah, in America, yeah. yeah, you can get thrown in prison, even if you're undetectable. So, I mean, so I don't know. So there was a period where it was very scary, and there was a lot of taboo and discrimination. It was hard. It was it was pretty horrible. When I got uh, first diagnosed, I was depressed, I think, for like a month. And then after a month, I said, like, well, whatever it will be, it will be. I'm not going to leave for AIDS. I'm going to make AIDS as part of my life as possible. Important part, because I need to take care of it. But I'm going to leave. And the same thing happened when I came out of the closet, you know. I said, I said, like, well, yeah, I'm proud to be gay and I'm proud to be out and I'm proud to be this. But uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to leave for the gay community or I'm going to leave Raphael's 
gay life. And that's when I, I separated both things. <laughs> I mean, I tried to separate it. I, Her I, whole I, fucking I, closet I, is rainbow. And I, I said, like, okay, I'm going I'm to... But being authentic, you know, it's being totally. you. Being it's authentic being you. is mm-hmm. all that you can... It's being you. You can, you can say, I'm the gayest person in the world. Yes, I am. But uh, I still live my life. Beautiful stories, all of these. Tune in for part two, where we'll be speaking about where we're at with the HIV vaccine trial with none other than Dan Harry from I Kissed a Boy and Marta Boffito, who is the clinical director of HIV at Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. Such a special episode, this. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Powered by Spirit Studios.